Give me back tomorrow for taking all that I can stand. Throw the weight of the world from the palm of your hand. Good morning and welcome to Lift Your Spirits Radio on 1150 AM KKNW in Seattle. I'm Bernadette Pager of Informed Choice Washington, a nonprofit organization advocating for scientific integrity in public health policies, healthy immunity, and fully informed consent. Like all of our shows, what we are presenting today is for educational purposes, purposes only, but we hope that what you hear spurs you to action to learn more and to tell others. We have a very exciting guest today. As always, I just keep finding people that have the information that I feel like you all need to know in order to make uh, informed decisions in your life. I want to read to you, though, a bit from an article that I wrote last year. It's called Perfectly Designed because it sets the stage for the information our guest is bringing us today. So babies are born perfectly designed to transition safely from the cozy and protected womb environment to the outside world. Perfectly designed does not mean ready to be independent. Infants and children are dependent on the parents for their very survival, needing their loving care and protection and food and everything else parents bring. This, of course, has always been intuitively known and practiced for eons of human existence. But current science, much of which is still not incorporated into modern day child health care recommendations, has shown us the importance of this nurturing, growing and acclimating time of life, which is needed for optimal health and well-being. Yet for many decades now, society has mistakenly developed practices that are, as the old saying goes, throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Many of the modern practices in children's health care negatively impact something very important to human health, the microbiome. And you guys might remember a couple weeks ago we had on Dr. Zach Bush. I recommend if you didn't hear that episode to go back to the podcast and listen to the amazing Dr. Bush talk about the microbiome. So what is that? It's the 10 to 100 trillion symbiotic microbial cells or microbiota, mostly bacteria, some yeast, viruses that inhabit the gut, the skin, and every orifice of the human host. Think of the microbiota as the trees and inhabitants of a forest forming the entire forest ecosystem. Microbiota talks to human host through gene expression and is critical to how human immune and nervous systems develop and function. It's estimated about 70% of the human immune system is in the gut, dependent upon a healthy microbiome for proper functioning. Many developmental uh, and chronic health issues have now been linked to factors that undermine the ability to create and sustain a healthy microbiome. With a healthy and robust microbiome, children thrive and their immune systems protect them from infections. It's therefore important for parents and healthcare providers to learn how to incorporate practices that build or restore a healthy microbiome and limit those that disrupt it. So what are those practices that have been found to disrupt the microbiome? Well, one is C-sections. Birth by this method um, prevents the proper colonization of newborn's gut with the maternal microbiota. The good news is is that many doctors now have, they've discovered this, and they will actually swab the mother and then you know, manually uh, swab the baby with that microbiota to help replace that. 
Washing the baby too soon after birth, which removes the vernix, the white coating on the baby's skin, which has been found to contain important immune cells that protect baby during the first few days of life. It's amazing. So now uh, washing is delayed um, and they just rub that vernix in, which is lovely. Formula feeding is another one that cannot mimic the numerous complex components of human breast milk and provide optimal nutrition as well as uh, really important maternal immunity. Uh, I just learned the other day, I keep squirreling, I apologize here, but that when the baby um, is, is suckling from the mother, there's this backward vacuum that occurs and some of the baby saliva is actually taken in by the mother and it sends signals to the mother for what nutrients and what immune defenses the baby needs it's such a miraculous beautiful symbiotic relationship between the mother and baby uh antibiotics as we all know in the word itself destroys um uh, that attempt to develop the good biome and glyphosate, which is unfortunately the uh, an antibiotic antimicrobial that is in glyphosate Roundup that is so systemic on the planet. It's now in rainwater. It's in tap water. It's everywhere. Um, that's a whole other show. Uh, but the final thing, which lead, will be about our guest today, is vaccination. Vaccination attempts by artificial means to enforce antibody production to a few selected pathogens via inflammatory immune reactions, sometimes at a cost of predisposing infants to other infections and skewing their immune system toward chronic dysregulation. So inflammation is a very important part of a mature immune system's response to infection, but acute inflammation I mean, acute inflammation is necessary to overcome infection, but if it becomes chronic, it gets out of control, it is damaging, even fatal at any age, let alone in infancy. Maternal antibodies and immune cells transferred via the placenta and breast milk temporarily shield infants from needing to mount a strong inflammatory immune response of their own, while at the same time protecting them by supplying ready-made immunity from their mothers. So with that, I'm going to introduce my guest. For decades, a growing number of parents and scientists and doctors worldwide have been calling for public health agencies to address vaccine safety issues, calling in particular for a vaccinated versus unvaccinated study to really examine the impact of this immune disruption and this immune skewing very early in life. But the CDC has refused to do such a study. So now we have independent scientists taking up the task, and we have with us today one such man. His name is Brian Hooker. He's a PhD and a PE, which is a professional engineer, a professor of biology at Simpson University in Redding, California. He specializes in chemistry and biology coursework. Additionally, Dr. Hooker uh, formerly worked at Aries Corporation, working closely on process design for the environment restoration industry. His design efforts focused on industrial biotechnology and chemical engineering principles. Dr. Hooker is a paid scientific advisor and serves on the advisory board for Focus for Health, the Board of Trustees for Children's Health Defense, and is an independent contractor for Children's Health Defense. He's the father of a 22-year-old man who has been diagnosed with autism and developmental delays. Uh, 
But Dr. Hooker is perhaps most famous for being the man that the CDC whistleblower, Dr. William Thompson, telephoned about six years ago, confessing he and others had committed fraud in a 2004 MMR study. That confession resulted in 10,000 pages of evidence being delivered to Congressman Posey, who begged Congress to subpoena the whistleblower. And we're waiting all this time, six years later, no action has yet been taken. So today our focus is on this brand new vaccinated versus unvaccinated study by Dr. Hooker and by Dr. Neil Miller that was published in the Sage Open Medicine Journal. Welcome, Dr. Hooker. Thank you so much, Bernadette. It is uh, really a pleasure to be on your show. I love what you're doing. I've been following Informed Choice Washington for a long time and uh, of course uh, uh, have been up there uh, to testify. And uh, so it, it's just wonderful. It's an honor to be with you today. Well, thank you. And you're, you're sort of a homeboy. You you were born and raised in Washington state. Is that I was, well, well I, I, I am a homeboy. I'm a coog. Uh, <laughs> I, I went to Washington state for my uh, graduate studies and um, also am from the Tri-Cities. Excellent, excellent. And now you're down in California, right? And and you have a new house, so I, I appreciate you um, pausing your big chaotic transition to your new <laughs> home to squirrel away with me for a bit and talk about this very important paper. Um, can you tell us, um, you know, what's the premise of the paper? What did you set out to look at? Well, we wanted to look at. Uh, medical records and these these all of the all of the numbers all of the results that we obtained uh, Neil Miller and I on this study were directly from pediatricians records from their from their actual medical chart records uh, this is for three pediatricians that are located across the United States and we wanted to make sure that we followed up these children from birth so that we knew exactly which vaccines they were getting at what time. And we looked at those children who were vaccinated in their first year of life. We focused on the first year of life uh, because that's when children receive the most vaccinations under the CDC schedule. Uh, children from ages zero to 18 receive 56 vaccines overall, but during the first year of life, they receive fully 21 of those vaccines. So we wanted to focus on that particular year and look at what uh, their, a, a child's vaccination status and then what type of health outcomes followed after their first birthday. And we focused on developmental delays, uh, gastrointestinal disorders, ear infections, and asthma. And then also we did a control diagnosis. Um, when, whenever you're dealing with different populations that might have different medical uh, behaviors and different health care seeking behaviors, it's good to do a control diagnosis to see are these individuals that aren't vaccinating, are they seeing the doctor more or less than those children that where the families are vaccinating. So we did a control diagnosis of head injury. And uh, so that was the premise of the study. Um, it was, it um, uh, included children that were anywhere from three years of age all the way to 13 years of age. And when we uh, looked specifically continuously following up these children from birth all the way to the present day, then we ended up with about 2,000 children. Um, and in the 
in the world of studies and study design, <clears throat> 2,000 children, is that a little? Is that a lot? How significant is that in your ability to know whether the outcome, you know, can be uh, applied, you know, to other people? A, a study with 2,000 uh, children is, I'd say it's a moderately powered study. The more children that you have in a study like that, the more that you have what's called statistical power and the more that you have the ability to find statistical significance. I've seen studies uh, with significant results that would apply to the entire United States with as few as uh, 600 children. I've seen some studies by the CDC that have been are comparably sized to the study that I did with Neil Miller uh, with about 2,000 children. And then you have large-scale studies that are more uh, a bit of a cross-section of the population that might encompass more like 50 to 100,000 children. So this on, on sort of on a spectrum, this is sort of a moderately scaled, moderately powered study. Mm -hmm. It did limit our ability to look, to look at specific types of developmental delays, but we were able to look at developmental delays in general. So that was one, one of the diagnoses I was very sure to, to include. That's, that's really important because um, according to the CDC itself, it, it's more than half of children, I think it's around 54% of children in the United States today um, have been diagnosed with either a developmental, a learning, or an immune uh, system disorder. Is, is that uh, correct? That so, is you know, we, correct, yes. And, you know, all of that, you know, when you look at science in other areas and you look at the gut biome science, as I said at the top of the show, um, all of these have now been related to the immune system and to the gut. And so the, the impact that vaccination may have on some children with these, it's really essential to look at. It's very multifactorial. One of the things I really loved about how you and Dr. Miller wrote this study was how careful you were um, explaining um, the limitations and, and what you did not look at and what you could not look at because of the availability of the information. Um, I think it's so important for listeners to understand that when, when science is done, um, no, headlines can be very deceiving about what they're seeing. And, you know, it's very important to not just read the headline or read the article that goes to the headline. Um, or read the analysis, or even read the introduction and then the conclusion of the study, I have found. But you have to get down, really right down there into all of the details and read it with an open mind. Science is not as difficult to read as people might think. And you can always look up the beauty of the internet now is you can look up any word or term you don't understand. But really it's sort of a lot of it is very common sense understanding. Does this make sense what I'm seeing or how they set a study up? And so it was you know, enjoyable to read how thorough you tried to be so that people, other researchers could follow in your footsteps and understand what other things needed to be done. I have found that you can look at studies with a million children but when you look carefully at the design, um, you realize, well, that's not going to tell you anything. You left this out or you cut this out, you know, and and you realize that the results mm, really don't have that weight. You might have a million kids, 
but the way you set it up didn't give us meaningful results. So, right. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's important too, like in your study, you only looked at, at the vaccinations in the first year of life. Um, some of the children in the study were not fully unvaccinated, as they say. Some had had some vaccines after, but that was a very small number, right? That was a small, very, very small number about when you looked at the unvaccinated group, uh, that was about 630 children that were that were during the first year of life were fully unvaccinated so they never received a vaccine and of that about i'd say about 16 percent then we had a vaccination on record that they received later on in life mostly between the first and second birthday mm -hmm. um but usually there were only just a few vaccines that were received in those children afterwards and the vast majority uh upwards to 84 percent were completely unvaccinated. So we never had a vaccine on record for those, excuse me, for those particular children. Uh, so that allowed us then we wanted to have a cutoff window where the children were vaccinated. And then we wanted to make sure that the diagnoses that we considered were only after that cutoff window. So we weren't having a faulty cause and effect. We weren't having a child diagnosed before vaccination. They were always diagnosed after vaccination. And okay. so that that kind of made things a clean study. Uh, that is so excellent. And I think that's a great place for us to stop right now when we come back from the break. <clears throat> I, I, I wanna um, get more into the nitty gritty of the details of what you were looking at and what you, what you found. So you are listening to Bernadette Pager and Dr. Hooker on Lift Your Spirits Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. Gather round the fire Together we will rise. Keep your feet on the ground. Keep your eye on the prize. Oh, don't turn away. Need information about your child's vaccinations? Informed Choice Washington is a nonprofit organization of parents, family members, medical professionals, educators, and Washingtonians from all walks of life. They believe in personal freedoms and individual choices, including healthcare choices. Their mission is to advocate for vaccine policy reform based on scientific integrity and individual health needs, to promote education about healthy immunity, and to protect informed consent and medical freedom in Washington state. To stay informed, visit informedchoicewa.org. Informed Choice Washington envisions the future where every doctor is fully trained in identifying vaccine risk factors and recognizing vaccine injury. Every child is afforded a personalized approach to disease prevention, and every parent has the freedom to make the best healthcare decisions for themselves and their families. They know every child matters. Go to informedchoicewa.org today. Did you know that 70 to 80% of your immune system resides in your gut lining? Ion Gut Health goes beyond probiotics to strengthen this barrier and balance your microbiome the natural way. This soil-derived supplement is scientifically proven to reinforce your first line of defense, keeping harmful foreign particles out of your bloodstream. Maintain a healthy immune system so that it can protect you when you need it most. Support your immune system with Ion Gut Health. Learn more at ionbiome.com. We all know that vitamin C is an essential nutrient our immune system needs. But did you know there's scientific evidence that vitamin C can be used safely and effectively to boost your body's immune system to fight infections? To learn how you can live life to the fullest, 
find the vitamin C expert, Dr. Paul Anderson, on Instagram and Facebook by searching DRA online or visit at consultdranderson.com today. Real people, real life, real radio. Alternative Talk, 1150. Welcome back to Lift Your Spirits on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm Bernadette Pager of Informed Choice Washington, your host today. And with me is Dr. Brian Hooker, one of the authors of a brand new study that we're talking about, which compared the health outcomes from children who were vaccinated in the first year of life and children who were not vaccinated in that first year of life. So so give us some details about, uh, about what you found. Well, we, like I said before, we looked at four specific conditions, uh, developmental delays, asthma, ear infections, and gastrointestinal disorders. And just from a very broad standpoint, we just, in our first analyses, we looked at vaccinated during the first year of life versus unvaccinated during the first year of life. And we saw really compelling relationships where those that were vaccinated during their first year of life were much more likely, and and this rose to the level of statistical significance, um, were more likely to be diagnosed with developmental delays, asthma, and ear infections. So we saw more of those. We saw in developmental delays in ear infections, approximately double the children that were in the vaccinated category were being diagnosed with these disorders. And then with asthma, it was much more dramatic about 4.5 times as many of the vaccinated children were being diagnosed with asthma versus those in their unva- in the unvaccinated cohort. So we saw that just literally jumped off the page. And then we controlled that, compared that to our control diagnosis, head injury. We saw no relationship, basically the same numbers of head injuries in the vaccinated and unvaccinated groups. So we really knew something was there. That's, that's pretty significant, double yes. um, and also fourfold increase. Is, that, is fourfold the same as saying four times? Just fourfold make sure. and four times, okay. I would say is the same. Okay, yes. I want to make uh, sure I get my terms correct. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're absolutely on base. Um, so we, we did see that in, in those particular groups. We went back, we uh, verified the diagnoses to, via chart review. Uh, because this was all based on medical records, all based on electronic records, all the patients were de-identified. So we were just dealing with patient numbers. We didn't even know what medical practices they came from. And so uh, we were able to do a really rigorous job with that. We also looked at the number of vaccines that children received during their first year of life. And that could be anywhere from one vaccine all the way to the full CDC schedule that would be 21 vaccines. So we had, we had sort of the full spectrum. Um, these were pediatric practices that were friendly to unvaccinating children, but the pediatricians did give vaccines. And uh, if a patient wanted to, or the family of a patient wanted to, they would fully follow the CDC schedule. So there were children in that group that were getting 21 vaccines. So when we did that, we saw the relationship actually strengthened with the number of vaccines that they received 
and became more significant and be became more profound than those children uh, sort of in the upper 25th percentile receiving anywhere between 13 and 21 vaccines. Then we saw significance in developmental delays, asthma, ear infections, and gastrointestinal disorders. So we didn't see with gastro, we didn't see the issues when they would receive maybe a small number of vaccines during the first year of life, but they became profoundly impacted, say, if they were receiving anywhere between 13 and 21 vaccines. So those, those that were highly vaccinated, we did see a relationship with gastrointestinal disorders. So parents who have been very concerned by the growing number of vaccines on the schedule, especially at that earlier age, you are finding evidence that there is cause for concern that maybe too many vaccines too early are increasing risk, according to um, what you found. That is, that is absolutely correct. We saw a strengthening of the risk, uh, specifically with developmental delays and uh, with asthma, we saw the risk, uh, the number of patients, the ratio of patients in the vaccinated versus unvaccinated group, the more vaccines that they received, we saw an upward trend. So more developmental delays, more asthma. With ear infections, it didn't seem to matter as much if they received one vaccine, if they received 21 vaccines during the first year of life, the, the relative risk was about 2.0. Mm -hmm. um, so that meant that you were twice as likely if you were in that vaccinated group, regardless of the number of vaccines. So there's something that's going on, and you know you focus on the you focus on the microbiota uh, directly, Bernadette, and you talk a lot about that. And I think there's a real disruption of the microbiota because what happens with an ear infection is that you're getting microbes in the eustachian tubes that are out of balance. They are no longer in balance. So you're getting a severe growth of microbes that are there in the first place, but they're becoming infective and they're overtaking the immune system. So that's when you get a full-blown infection. And so I think there's some disruption of the microbiota that even one vaccine can cause that is causing these ear infections. Um, this isn't part of, of your study, but but you as a scientist, do you could you explain to listeners why a vaccine may interrupt the development of the microbiota. How, what's going on there? Well, first of all, you have a lot of contaminants that are going to kill off some of the beneficial microbes, uh, things like aluminum adjuvants, aluminum sulfate, aluminum uh, uh, phosphate, um, organics like squalene and um, peanut oil, and some of these some of these components, first of all, they're going to kill off, and that will change the balance of the microbiota. Um, also, you have the flu shot that contains mercury that will kill off beneficial uh, organisms and promote the growth of non-beneficial yeast. If if and, they get the um, if they get the multi-dose, the shot pulled from the multi-dose, yeah, that then is there is still so, mercury in that that people need to know. Um, I want to challenge you a little bit, though, on the peanut oil. Uh, yes. It is, you know, I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole a little bit. Now, it's my understanding that there is not currently peanut oil used in any vaccines. Are you saying that there might be residue left from something in the manufacturing process? I know that They're the... Yeah, um, just real quick, so like the vitamin K shot, which is not a, a vaccine, but it gives 
huge, massive dose of vitamin K on, you know, right at birth. Um, it is in a castor oil derivative. And the castor oil is so closely related to the peanut that if your body decides to create antibodies to that castor oil, which, you know, a fraction of the population will have that occur, those antibodies can also attach to peanuts. So that is one theory behind the increase in peanut allergy. But where are you seeing that, that peanut might be somewhere in the vaccine process today? I would have to go back and check that. I think that you probably caught me with my pants down a little bit in terms <laughs> of understanding of the different vaccines and derivatives. I know that peanut oil is an ASO3, which is in the HPV vaccine, but um, it is not in, I don't know whether it's in the infant schedule. Obviously the HPV vaccine is not in the infant schedule. So yeah. I would have to go back and look. Like one of the things though that is very concerning to me is the, the amount of aluminum that we're exposing children through adjuvanted vaccines, which is definitely in there. If it's not a live vaccine, then chances are that it has aluminum adjuvant in it. And mm -hmm. so we're giving our children massive doses of aluminum uh, that is toxic to a portion of the microbiome. So it's shifting the biome, it's shifting the population of beneficial bacteria. And you really have to look at that. Um, and and a, a baby at, at birth, their immune system, there's, there's two parts. There's like this thing called the Th1 and the Th2. And right. one of those, the Th1, it's my understanding, um, doesn't really kick into full gear for newborns in the first year of life. That's the one that would go after foreign matter. It's, it's, um, or is that the Th2? No. Now you, perhaps you've got this down better. I don't have my notes right in front of me. Um, but the aluminum um, forces the, the immune system to have either the Th1 or the Th2 reaction. Which one is it? I've got them. I, you know, honestly, I'm not an <laughs> and so I can't remember. I know it's yeah. one of the one of the T, T helper arms is yeah. TH1 or TH2. Um, but you know, my focus has been, been more on the biochemistry and not the immunology. Mm. Um, but I do know that one of the things that does happen is you create all this non-specific autoimmunity. Um, because you're taking a naive immune system that hasn't been exposed to a lot of antigens, and then you're um, creating a scenario where you are putting in adjuvants which create very non-specific immunity. It's very, you know, it's 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 very non-specific. And then when you throw any type of antigen in the mix, mix which could be a food particle, which could be a portion of the human body. Mm -hmm. uh, then, then you start to raise up issues like autoimmunity. My own son has a variant of Crohn's disease. Uh, mm -hmm. So he has autoantibodies to his own intestinal tract. And Ooh, to me, that's very, very concerning. And that should not have happened. And when you start to take adjuvanted vaccines in children, especially those that are genetically susceptible, then that's one of the outcomes. Yeah, that... and. So that genetic component, I'm really glad you brought that up because yes. obviously some children seem to do absolutely fine on the full CD schedule, CDC schedule. Um, but there is a growing subpopulation. Um, and I would argue that the more vaccines they add to the schedule, the, the more children become susceptible be 
you know, to this assault, you know, um, we can all handle a certain amount, but eventually it overwhelms everybody. So I think the main, the main thing here though, that affects quite a few children is that when their immune systems are, are either TH1 or TH2 dominant, I apologize for not having that, uh, down pad. I haven't looked at that area of science in a little bit. I've been focused on COVID. And okay. so it's like, I, I haven't walked into that room in a bit. But you're in order to really fully quickly populate over the first couple of years of life, you don't want your body really aggressively attacking, creating inflammation and attacking things that it exposed to because then it would not populate. And, and what happens when you force the immune system to react too early before the population happens, then it begins to react to things that it considers bad foreign invaders that aren't, for example, food, you know? And um, yeah, so it'll be, it's really fascinating the areas of science. So, you know, you've got immunology and, but that's, that's a whole different way of looking at what's going on than what you do. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is more, which is more looking at it on a population basis, and I understand some of the in, immunology, and I would venture a guess that we're looking at overstimulation of the Th2 arm, mm-hmm. not the Th1 arm. Uh, Th2 is more for foreign invaders, um, but uh, I, you know, that's about where I would go, <laughs> and I'd yeah. stop right there because yeah. I would make a mess of the immunology. I'm more of a epidemiologist slash biochemist. So I understand more of the biochemistry around that, but not not necessarily, you know, exactly which immune cells are being stimulated. Mm-hmm. But you know, regardless of that, the take-home message is that the, there is something going on, and we do have children that have some type of toxic tip, toxic tipping point. And as we're more aggressively vaccinating, then we're seeing the numbers of children with chronic illnesses go up. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. in the 1980s, it was, there were 12% of the population of the United States children that had chronic illnesses. Now we're at 54%, and we've seen that number steadily rise. And the other thing that has risen co-currently with that is the vaccination schedule. Yeah, exactly. Um, so are there any other details of your study that you would like to talk about, things that surprised you? Mm-hmm. What uh, we also looked at a, a time relationship to see if children were receiving vaccines earlier, if they were more susceptible to these particular disorders. And we saw exactly that um, one of the things like gastrointestinal disorders, excuse me just a minute, um, uh, things like gastrointestinal disorders uh, that were not significant in the main population. But if you looked at those children that were receiving vaccines before the first six months of life, then that became highly significant. So all of the the non-control diagnoses that we looked at, when we looked at that zero to six month window, so those children that were not only getting vaccines in the first year of life, but also in the first six months of life, then we saw the relationship strengthen. So there seemed to be a timing relationship that would suggest that delaying the vaccination might be a good idea. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, you know, a, such an important, strong point. And, and unfortunately today, uh, more and more 
doctors are kicking families out of practices if they do not choose to do the full um, CDC schedule on time, um, if they want to delay or space. What I find um, extremely frustrating is there, there, there are no studies that show that it is the CDC schedule is safe, that no. the full schedule has never been tested. They keep adding to it. There may be individual, very short term studies looking at pairing up these vaccines and these vaccines with the full schedule has actually never been safety tested. And the Institute of Medicine, which is now called something else that I always forget. National, um, Academy, National Academy of Medicine. The National Academy of Medicine, you know, yes. they are taxed by that um, 1986 law. I, I don't know if uh, listeners out there are aware of the 1986 Na National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act that indemnified vaccine makers and anybody who administers a vaccine, uh, so they're not responsible for injury or death um, due to the administration of these products. And you have to go to vaccine court if, if any injury or death occurs. Um, and so, well, with, with that, I see that it is time to move on to a next uh, uh, break here. So when we come back, we're going to dive even more into some of the details of what you found and maybe leave us with some hope for the future of what we can do to empower ourselves to keep our children healthy um, without putting their, uh, their future immunity at risk. So this is Bernadette Pager on uh, Lift Your Spirits Radio, 1150 AM, KKNW. Feeling the need to get away and reconnect with Mother Nature? Located on Whitby Island, Earth Sanctuary is a peaceful and magical sculpture garden, nature reserve, and retreat center with two miles of nature trails, three bird-filled ponds, and a variety of powerful sacred spaces, including a labyrinth, stone circles, and medicine wheels. Come and enjoy the wonders of nature and experience personal renewal, spiritual growth, and healing today. Visit earthsanctuary.org or the Earth Sanctuary on Facebook for more information. So you know, all healing begins in the cells, and for the cells to do their job, well, they need the right nutrients, like vitamin C and D, and gases, like oxygen. Did you know that there is a treatment that infuses every cell of your body with oxygen? Hyperbaric Oxygen Therapy, HBOT for short, is a safe and effective medical treatment that can be used in therapies for many injuries and diseases. HBOT was actually used successfully during the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic to treat hypoxia and respiratory failure, and it's now being used to successfully treat COVID-19 as several clinical trials are underway. HBOT increases your production of glutathione, which is critical to immune function and increases stem cell proliferation. To learn more about this century-old technology that is the future of medicine, visit hbotnews.org today. That's hbotnews.org. Lift your spirits with us every Friday at 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. on 1150 AM KKNW Seattle. We will be introducing you to fascinating people, fun places to visit, and activities are guaranteed to lift your spirits. Miss a show? 
No worries, you can visit 1150kknw.com and click on our archive page or like Lift Your Spirits with Dina Marie on Facebook for upcoming guests and events. To contact me, Dina Marie, visit dina-marie.com. Thank you so much for listening. Self-help, healing, spirituality, and more on Alternative Talk, 1150. Throw the weed of the world from the palm of your hand. Gather around the fire, together we will rise. Keep your feet on the ground, keep your eye on the prize. Oh, don't turn away. Welcome back to Lift Your Spirits Radio on 1150 AM KKNW. I'm Bernadette Pager, and here today with me is Dr. Brian Hooker. Um, and we're talking about the vaccinated versus unvaccinated study that he and Dr. Miller have just had published. On the on the break, I mean, we just can't stop talking here. It's it's really exciting information. Um, we got into the, um, the specifics of vaccines, or rather, the frustration of him not being able to learn about whether or not the last vaccine given was live or an inactivated or killed vaccine, as they call it, which would be adjuvanted. So explain to us, Dr. Hooker, why that's important. Well, we, we looked at three different medical practices. We were very fortunate to have three uh, participating pediatricians who uh, let us uh, access their electronic medical records, of course, all de-identified. So we couldn't you know, uh, uh, have any type of patient identification. But uh, in one of the practices, we did not know what type of vaccine was given when. We just knew that a vaccine was given. So we would count the number of vaccines that we were received by the first year of life. Uh, but we weren't able to say, did they end on a live virus vaccine like MMR or varicella, or did they end on an adjuvanted vaccine like Hib or hepatitis B or the DTaP vaccine? Because there are differences in outcome, and, and there, there is a body of study that shows that if you end on a live virus vaccine, that the outcomes may be slightly better. So we, we, we quoted that body of literature in the... Um, in the paper, but we weren't able to confirm or deny the existence of such a relationship. Yeah, and when you, and I have read some of the the studies that talk about um, live versus adjuvanted. Um, Dr. Is it Abby, Abby? um, Dr. Abby, yeah. He's done some amazing work in Africa and and showed that if the last, like with the DPT that they're still giving over there. That is correct. um, That it was like a tenfold increased risk of um, of death from non-vaccine mortality from um, not from um, the vaccine and not from diphtheria, pertussis or tetanus, but from other causes that seems to be something about that inactivated, uh, heavily aluminum adjuvanted vaccine, um, what it does to the immune system in making it incapable. Maybe it's partly colonization. Maybe it's partly, you know, what it's doing to the immune system and how it reacts to the world. We don't know. And that's that's the problem. One of the things you mentioned on the break is we are so far behind in the science on, on the long-term impacts of vaccines on the immune system and especially on the developing immune system and what that means. And that's like, I started the show with, are we throwing the baby out with the bathwater? 
um, and you know, and another point, and I want to get back to to your data there is that you know we give these vaccines thinking that you know we want to protect them from developing symptoms to infection. They don't necessarily prevent infection, but but they will um, for a limited amount of time either reduce or prevent symptoms of infection. I think that's really a distinction Distinction a lot of people don't know. And they're short term. So, you know, you don't naturally, like if you've got whooping cough, you don't naturally develop a lifetime immunity to whooping cough. We actually don't know how long natural immunity lasts to actually experiencing it. But we do know that the, the shot gives you far less length of protection, maybe 18 months. And the way it's designed, it actually never prevents infection, colonization, or transmission. They're finding that vaccinated toddlers are giving, who are asymptomatic, are giving whooping cough to their newborn siblings. Um, so there's just, there's lots of things within, within what we're hoping to achieve with these vaccine products that people don't fully understand. In the case of measles, mumps, and rubella, which is that live vaccine that seems to um, uh, not be um, quite as bad as the activated as far as the long-term health impact. Right. But that wanes. And the CDC's own study shows that for most adults who had two MMRs by 20 years out, um, or was it 30, 20 to 30 years out? I, again, I don't have that information at my fingertips. They've lost protection to measles. Right. Now we know that measles um, immunity is lifelong when you get it wild, but the vaccine is not. So if you've got about a third of the adult population fully vaccinated and, and the studies show a third vaccine cannot extend protection, we're moving into an era where we have a significant percentage of the adult population now susceptible to uh, measles and there's nothing really you can do about it. So, so one of the things a parent who's trying to make a fully informed decision needs to consider is, am I protecting my child at a time of life, say for MMR, when they were not susceptible to poor infection outcome? Four-year-olds who are healthy and have adequate vitamin A generally handle measles very well. In fact, before the vaccine was introduced in the United States, the death rate due to measles in the entire country was between 400 and 500. That is very, very low um, because most people aged 15 and over had lifetime immunity and mothers had very strong passive immunity to give to their babies. And so nature had pushed the window of infection to where it's safest to experience. This is what happens when you, when a, a virus goes through its natural way of trying to become symbiotic in a, in a community. Population. Absolutely. Yeah, right. And, and so you have to ask yourself, if I give my child this now, knowing it will likely wear off at a certain stage, like the hep B given at birth, that any potential uh, protection there is lost by the time they are of an age where they might be exposed to hep B. So why yeah. give it at birth? Those are the sort of questions parents need to ask. Um, sorry for that squirrel. No. Uh, <laughs> you have to go down the rabbit hole with these particular issues. And you brought up the MMR. I always get so concerned about the mumps portion of the MMR vaccine because what it's doing is it's not preventing mumps, it's just delaying the incidence of mumps to when these children are in college. 
but they yeah. get heart, they get waning immunity, and then they, all of a sudden they get a, a childhood infection that would be relatively mild. Now all of a sudden they're getting it in a window where it's going to be a big problem, and mm -hmm. it can cause issues. You know, in males it can cause testicular issues, leading to sterility, and that's not something. That's not an outcome that you want as a young adult male. That mm -hmm. when you're exposed to mumps in college because you've got waning immunity and you, and in your MMR vaccine. Uh, is no longer effective. Yeah, all of the recent outbreaks have been in fully vaccinated um, right. young adults, teens, um, young military, that sort of thing. Um, and right. yeah, Merck um, did the did that trial ever finish? Merck has been on trial uh, for not. falsifying the effectiveness of the mumps portion of the MMR for a decade, and they really close to having. An answer here, but there should be some where... type of resolution soon. But but you know, you 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 do not know, and and it isn't, um, you know the the it, it mumps is not talked about in the media. It's really really odd because if we have an outbreak of measles, it you know all these bells and whistles go off. But if we have an outbreak of mumps, it seems like society just says, oh, well, you know, we just sort of accept that that portion of the vaccine doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And but yet it is, you know, it is a huge issue. And, um, you know, Merck has had the monopoly on the MMR vaccine and we're bearing the brunt of it as a country. Yeah. And I, I know that their GSK is seeking license for their MMR product, probably right. getting ready in case MMR loses its license. But I don't know that their mumps um, portion of the vaccine has any could be know, any better. Sure. Could be any better. But same same health issues uh, related right. to their product as to Merck's. OK, so we've got just a few more minutes here back to your um, study. Um, asthma is a real concern. Um, you know, earaches, those are, those are bad. Those are annoying. They, they're not always like life-threatening though. Right. Asthma is, is pretty scary thing. And a fourfold increase in asthma is very concerning. It really is concerning. We saw that relationship actually become sixfold when children received more vaccinations. So wow. we, we saw that, that um, there was almost a, a linear relationship when you, when you went from the lower 25% of the vaccinated population up to you know, maybe the third, what we would consider the third quarter, then, there was a re then that relationship would strengthen. And those children that were in that kind of third group were about six times more likely to get an asthma diagnosis. And no parent wants that. No parent wants to go through a child that has a lifetime of breathing disorders and that is, you know, that can extend into uh, adulthood and mm -hmm. it can cause a multitude of other types of problems. Asthmatics do die and that you can, you know, you can have a, a very, very strong asthmatic re reaction and go into anaphylaxis. And so it is, it's a huge problem. Mm -hmm. um, and some of the other disorders that we didn't talk about in this study, you know, this is going to be a series of papers we're working on uh, the next study uh, as, as we speak. And so we do want to look at things like food sensitivities, uh, uh, more chronic ear infections, uh, and get into the granularity of developmental delays like autism, ASD, mm -hmm. uh, ADD, and ADHD, and you know, really drill down into that. So there's more information that's coming. 
That's wonderful. Um, I, I so appreciate all of the work that you are doing. Uh, you work full time, you work more than full time. <laughs> and this is your passion. I know you, you're driven by love for your son and, sure. and, and your desire to ensure that all children um, can have the best chance at a healthy life and fulfill their destiny and not be harmed by, uh, by the wrong choices out there. Right. And, um, and we only can make good choices if we have good information. Correct. So, um, Dr. Hooker, thank you so much for joining us here today. I hope when your next study comes out, you will join me again, Absolutely. if not before then, <laughs> yes. uh, to cover this very important issue. Um, and so with that, I want to I want to finish up here with a, a final comment on the germ, uh, the germ and terrain theory, because it's sort of coming down to that where we are today fighting COVID as a war. Um, really battles with the concept of terrain theory, which looks not at germs as enemies, but the fact that we need to alter our terrain in a peaceful way so that the germs are not harmful. So the justification for the development of more and more vaccines is based on that germ theory, which says that infectious diseases are caused by microorganisms invading the body. Uh, and that was Pasteur, uh, Louis Pasteur's um, role. But then we had, and I can't pronounce his last name correctly, probably Antoine Béchamp. I don't speak um, French. Yes, <laughs> you got it. Good, job. good, good. Another French scientist, and he really believed that the train theory, that the state of the health of the individual determines whether or not any microbes can infect you. And we really have seen that played out with COVID. Um, elderly people in very poor health and others with, with poor health, they are succumbing. And the terrain theory approach to wellness is to find those nutrients that are needed and the oxygen therapies and those sort of things to really boost your, your immune system's own ability to become inhospitable to invasion from this microbe or from disease escalation. So I, um, I, the cold COVID experience has put on a global level, the germ war approach at odds with the terrain healing um, approach. Um, and you can tell obviously which side I am on um, history has shown us that infectious disease mortality plummeted with access to clean water, good nutrition, and proper sanitation. Um, and all of the studies on the microbiome um, and how we are symbiotic creatures with the rest of creation here really point toward terrain theory as being the way for wellness as well as for disease prevention strategies. So I'm gonna leave our listeners today with a simple message regarding health. Please read deeply, think critically and act accordingly. Stay well, my friends, and make it a healthy day. Give me back tomorrow, taking all that I can stand. Throw the weight of the world from the palm of your hand. Gather round the fire, together we will rise. Keep your feet on the ground, keep your eye on the prize. Oh.